0: This is Emergency Medicine Match Advice, sponsored by Academic Life and Emergency Medicine, a podcast series designed to help medical students and residents strategically navigate the process of applying for residency in emergency medicine or to EM-sponsored fellowship programs. I'm your host, Mike Cisandi from Stanford University. Let's get started. Welcome to Emergency Medicine Fellowship Match Advice, sponsored by your friends in Academic Life and Emergency Medicine. And it's editor-in-chief, my stabilizing force while I live in this dystopian universe, Dr. Michelle Lin from UCSF. Hello, Michelle.
1: Hello, hello. I love that title. I'm putting that one on my CV as well.
0: Yeah, stabilizing force. I mean, the world is crazy, Michelle. Thank God for you. Well, today's episode is a special one, everybody. It's a spinoff show, EM Fellowship Match Advice. And as we always ask, is the spinoff ever as good as the original? We're going to ask our panelists in this episode entitled EM Match Advice for administration fellowships. And to offer their sage advice on matching to an admin fellowship, we have three outstanding fellowship directors. Dr. Martin Resnick from UMass. Hi, Martin. Howdy. Dr. Jennifer Weiler from the University of Colorado. Hello. Thanks for joining us. And Dr. Robbie Tanaway from Cornell University. Hey, guys. Thanks for joining us, Robbie. So let's let's dive into the discussion with our first panelist, Dr. Resnick. Martin, I'd really like you to kind of just give us a broad overview of the types of admin fellowships that are out there. They come in all kinds of shapes and sizes. Maybe just tell us a little bit about the formats that are available.
2: Sure. It's a great question. I think it comes up a lot. Those of you that are listening to this have probably looked at it, and there are many shapes and sizes. The way I look at it, the first differentiator is one-year versus two-year programs. That's a first major differentiator in programs. I think the other big one is academic versus non-academic centers and where the fellowship is housed. Beyond that, there are some subtle distinctions amongst fellowships. I think that uh, you can look at a single ED versus a site that has multiple EDs. There's some distinctions there within the training. And then you can also get into niche training. Several programs out there have some specialization that's unique to the department or particularly maybe the fellowship director themselves that you can learn some different things. For instance, there may be a med ed spin or a research spin, that type of thing. But those are the big differences out there, I think, in characterizing programs.
0: So you can get into maybe a little bit of the rationale for these differences. Like why would somebody do a one-year versus a two-year fellowship?
2: But one-year programs really, in my experience and what I know about them, it's sort of the nuts and bolts of running an emergency department. Uh, Generally, they're preparing people to be an assistant or associate director of an emergency department or potentially run a smaller emergency department that's less complicated. In general, the two-year programs add a level of leadership training as well that goes beyond that sort of nuts and bolts day-to-day stuff. For instance, you could get into scholarly activity. You could get into regional or national presence, some of whom focus on education if they're in more academic settings. So it really is. I mean, there's two things. A, it's a longer training period, but I think there is an increased focus on the majority of the two year programs on general leadership skills versus day to day operational stuff related to an emergency department.
0: Okay, great. And what about degree programs? You know, some of the fellowships have stipends or pay for a master's degree.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, there are. Again, of the two-year programs I'm familiar with, many of them either require or at least offer access to a master's level training, either affiliated with the institution they're at or some other opportunity. You know, there is this distinction that's gone on for a number of years of MBA versus MHA slash MHSA slash MMM. There's a number of acronyms out there now. And then occasionally you can look at MPHs uh, associated with these fellowships, but that's a different niche. So I'll focus on this discussion, the MBA versus the MHA and the other alphabet soup that goes with that. It's basically the curricula are mostly overlapping for what you need as an administrative fellow. But there are a couple of distinct differences. I think the first is there will be a couple courses within an MBA training that may not be particularly relevant to running an emergency department or running a hospital. Equity valuation is the first thing that comes to mind. That's a course that I had to take. While I found it sort of helpful in life, it didn't necessarily help me and what I was doing for my occupation. The other distinct difference is the case studies that you get in an MBA versus an MHA slash MMM program. In the MBA, most of the case studies are not gonna be related to healthcare at all. Whereas in the MHA program, they will. The positive side to the MHA in that regard is that they're going to be immediately applicable to your life, and you're probably going to be able to jump into the case much easier because you're used to things that are hospital-based cases or clinic-based cases. Whereas the MBA, you know, we had case studies about building airplanes, something I knew nothing about, so it was just less relevant right off the bat. But the flip side to that is that you do get more focused on thinking outside the box, per se, by an MBA program. Now I'm speaking a little bit outside of my expertise because I never did an MHA, but from what I've heard, the MBA allows you to begin to think and learn from people that aren't necessarily in healthcare to give you exposure to things outside of healthcare and how those businesses are run. In the old days, there used to be a stigma against MBA programs within healthcare of you know these people are greedy and they're in it for money. That's kind of gone by the wayside. So ten years ago, when I was advising people on MBA versus no, I would come into the conversation, but that's less important. But the one key difference out there is. If you pursue a job, ultimately, or a career in traditional clinic or hospital-based medicine, the MBA, MHA probably doesn't make a huge amount of difference, in my opinion. If you choose to pursue something a little bit outside the box, for instance, entrepreneurship, I do think there's distinct advantages for an MBA versus an MHA, which is much more focused on sort of traditional healthcare stuff. And then the last one is for non-traditional businesses outside of hospital sort of and clinic operations, the MBA has more cachet with them as well. So there's an advantage there as well.
0: And one more question for you, SAM approval, right? Society for Academic Emergency Medicine will offer approval for certain types of fellowships and admin fellowships are one of those. Is there any difference between SAM approved and non-SAM approved and, and should that matter?
2: Well, I think it's important to put it into perspective why SAM approves these fellowships and why it endeavors to do that. And so a quick step back. Historically, SAM, it started with research fellowships, I believe. It really was for non-ACGME accredited training programs, SAM felt that there was an importance to get in to sort of set the bar of standards for fellowships. Okay, so that's what that's their intent to that. I don't want to I'm not speaking officially for the organization, although I sit on the fellowship committee, so I know the history. And so it was for two reasons. A, it's to ensure that there's a curriculum that reaches some standard for fellowship applicants to see and fellows to be held to, but also protection for the fellows themselves. Things like work hours restrictions, things like that, that are sort of set into this. It's not as hard set as, say, ACGME, whether you're accredited a or not. It's just the stamp of approval. And the last thing that it does is it allows for an external peer review of the program, so to speak, of, pe- of true peers that do this type of stuff to sort of set that bar. So is there a difference? The answer is, if you are SAM approved, so to speak, you get the stamp of approval, you've reached that bar. And that's a that's sign to somebody that's applying that you've made that bar. That's not to say that the ones that aren't approved don't meet that bar, uh, but you just don't necessarily have an external peer review of that program. And you're going to have to make the judgments for yourself as, as an applicant, potentially for a fellowship.
0: It appears, uh, at least on a recent check of the SAM website, that seven programs are approved currently for administration fellowships, and there are 27 admin fellowships not SAM approved. So before we get to our next panelist, Martin, I got to ask about spinoff shows. This is probably my favorite question of these episodes. So what is your favorite spinoff show? I'm going to have to say the Colbert Report. Colbert? Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, it came off The Daily
2: Show. I, you know, it's been a while now. I can't believe how long ago it has been, but I think that that's a great
0: one. Yeah, Colbert Report for me is, is always a great one. It's, all right. Great. Great. All right. Well, right. thanks. We're going to go to our, our next panelist, Dr. Weiler from University of Colorado. And, you know, your 30,000 foot question for me really is is the purpose of these fellowships. So maybe we can get into why, why a new grad would go after a fellowship in administration.
3: The reason to seek a fellowship is really to get advanced training when thinking about what you want your future to career to look like. And most folks are thinking about their first maybe five years out uh, and the job that they're looking to achieve as a medical director of an emergency department. Other folks set their sights on other roles within the payer space, maybe governmental space, uh, maybe within a hospital leadership space. So that may be CMO, CQO, maybe a position within a practice plan. There's lots of opportunities now for people who have clinical training, specifically physicians, uh, where before in some of these leadership roles, nurses uh, or other clinical staff trained people sought leadership roles to run organizations where physician leadership really wasn't represented. And now in some places, there's an expectation that certain portfolios are run by physicians. So really, that would be the reason to get a fellowship because it's hard to get advancement nowadays uh, without some formal training, except I would say in maybe the entrepreneurship space there, you know, you don't require any formal training, but some people do think that it's valuable to help them get a leg up in that space. And it's not just about
0: having said you've, you've done a fellowship or having the letters MBA after your name. It really is about the different types of training you can get in fellowship. So perhaps you could talk about what those are. I mean, I guess when I think about an admin fellowship, I'm thinking mostly about like the medical director in my department or the folks who run the ED operations. But it sounds like there's lots of different skill sets that you can pick up in fellowship.
3: Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think it goes back to Martin's point about what's the difference between a one-year and a two-year fellowship. I think there's an opportunity to really create a broad spectrum of skills, and I think different programs offer different access to some of those. So that's actually a really important question that candidates should be asking, because even across administrative jobs, there's specialization. And so you're right. What are the skills? Well, I would say the basic blocking and tackling skills that someone should come out of a fellowship with are expertise in operations, quality, and finance. But there should also be skills related to human resource management. You should have access to developing a skill set around strategy for programmatic development um, or optimization. Some programs will offer you some expertise in, in research. There also could be a focus on innovation, entrepreneurship, really understanding complex adaptive systems. And that's where, as Martin mentioned before, others may go into maybe a more of a, a spin around performance excellence team training, education. It's really actually a a really diverse space where there's an opportunity to really dig in and specialize if you have an interest.
0: And it sounds like, you know, there's so many things there that not all fellowships can offer all of those things. I mean, some fellowships are, are better at some things than others. Is that the implication?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I think those are the questions that candidates have to ask. You know, some people come in and just want broad exposure, and that's absolutely okay. I believe any programs that you're interested in have to be able to describe to you how they're going to make you an excellent medical director. That's the basic skill set. If there's an interest, either acquisition of a certain role or, you know, an area, then, you know, those are the questions to ask if the program has the expertise or availability to that expertise to give that to you during your time. And do you think you have enough time to develop those skills? So exposure is one thing, but really being able to develop those skills is another.
0: I always counsel residents, right? When they're thinking about a fellowship, a little bit of it is what what do you think your prospective employer will assume you know when you finish that fellowship, right? Like what job can you take? And it sounds like maybe the immediacy job is medical director, but you know, there's a lot of other roles one can aspire to.
3: Right. And just to say, it, actually, the first job is the assistant medical or associate medical director. Typically, when coming out of these roles, sometimes a medical director of maybe an observation unit or, you know, a smaller site, you could get a medical director role. But those are the typical roles that people are looking for in their first mm-hmm. year out.
0: And then how does, you mentioned research, how does scholarship fit into this? You know, I, I always look across the hall at the vice chair of operations in my department, and I think, God, he has so much data that he could be publishing on. And, you know, there's just only so many hours in the day and, you know, somebody has to keep the lights on in the department. So I always wonder, you know, how does he fit scholarship into his world? Um, how does that fit into the training of fellows?
3: Yeah, it's a great question, right? The definition of scholarship is dissemination of knowledge, and there's lots of opportunities uh, to do that. I think often we think about traditional peer review publications is that way, which really is the gold standard for folks who are seeking an academic appointment. But I would say it's varied currently. So at least from the fellowship perspective, there are some fellowships that have no expectation of training to a skill set around scholarship development where there are others that are quite rigorous in their training in research methodology and are laser focused on developing that skill set, almost on that implementation science side. So I think, again, candidates have to decide what kind of skills and experience they want in a fellowship, because right now it's quite broad programs that exist.
0: All right. Well, thanks for all that. Now, you know, I really would like to hear about your, I don't know whether it's going to be a TV show or, or your, your spinoff movie, but I'm dying to know, Dr. Weiler, what, what is your favorite spinoff show?
3: Well, I confess, I asked my kids what I should say and they said I should say Dude Perfect because that's their Perfect. favorite show that's on YouTube a, uh, it's a spin-off. You have, <laughs> and it turns out, I wrote it down, Overtime is the spin-off show that they have forced me to watch.
0: <laughs> the Dude Perfect spin-off is Overtime?
3: Overtime. Wow, you're All totally right hip. You're your so hip with you. <laughs>
0: Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, Dr. Tanaway, I I am always interested in strategy, right? The purpose of this series is to help alleviate some stress for our applicants. And we are going to launch this podcast probably the very beginning of September, right at the start of interview season for most fellowship programs. So I know you guys don't follow a a match, you're not in the NRMP. So uh, what does that mean for applicant strategies to try to get their best program? Yeah, I think we get this question
4: a lot, right, from different levels of residents, even medical students who are thinking really far ahead and you know our best advice is apply early and not just apply early i think get your name in the hat you know contact the program early you know in preparation for this i actually just spoke with our fellow right before we were recording and he said before labor day which might be a scary thing if we're publishing this right around labor day but the point was that his his residency directorship basically said, you know, you want to apply early because just in case you don't find a match, you're in the pool of uh, applicants for regular jobs, quote unquote, you know, the attending job out of residency. So I thought that was a really insightful comment. In terms of how we think about it on the fellowship side, it's a bird in the hand, right? So if we find a great match, we're going to jump to sign that person. And so I think from the applicant side, the strategic view is if you can get to know a fellowship director, even the year before you're applying, and understand the the nature and the flavor, like Martin and Jen are saying, of that type of fellowship, then you're going to have a leg up already, and the application is just a formality.
0: Yeah, so this is a big change from the match, right? The last time our residents were looking for a job, it was, it was a match, so... You know, now they're going to apply to a bunch of programs. They're going to interview in some sort of series, and perhaps the very first place they interview at will like them and and offer them a job. Is it smart then to just take that job? How far into the season would you want your your residents to continue on interviewing? Or do you think these are exploding offers and they really need to take the first one they see? Yeah, it's tough to know. I mean,
4: I think that certainly from the resident side, if you're interviewing, and your first interview just looks like a great match, then it's in the right location, you like the department, you see a future in that department, I think you take it. Uh, Because there's not an official match, you don't know if your second interview or third interview, which are weeks or months down the line, they could already be offering a job to somebody without you knowing. So you may not actually have a second or third interview that materializes. That's the, the scary side of it. The positive side, I think, is you can wait as long as you need because there are always attending jobs out there. And in some ways, um, I'd love to hear what the other panelists have to say. It's nice to get a fellow who's a little seasoned as an attending. So we're not just talking to senior residents out there. Our inaugural fellow was a few years out. And he brought an incredible wealth of knowledge and experience and a really formed professional personality to how he approached the fellowship and how he approached his MBA, honestly. Um, and I think you know, there, there's a lot to chew on there is how you approach your advanced degree as well, not just your time
0: in the department. Can we pull the curtain back a little bit more, though, from the program side, right? So the applicant may have five or six interviews at five or six different programs, the program will offer them a job, you know, and then they have the considerations you just mentioned. But let's say your first candidate, you love them, you make the offer, how long do you wait on them in a process that's going to play itself out in six or eight weeks? Are you putting time limits? Are there exploding offers so that you can move to your next candidate quickly? What's your general approach? I see what you're saying. From the fellowship side,
4: pulling that curtain back probably depends on the applicant and how bad the fellowship wants that applicant, right? You know, I think a typical two weeks time getting to know what the applicant, him or herself, what they're looking for, because it's a very personalized application process. On the fellowship side, we're really digging into, in our case, what does New York City look like for you? this is a tertiary city for you and you'd rather be in the Bay Area, Colorado, Massachusetts, and I'm I'm your third city. In my mind, that offer, I don't consider it likely to be taken. So I may put that out there. But in our case, we have uh, up to two lines. So we will probably put another hook in the water simultaneously and know that person is probably not going to take our offer. But I think the freedom... Behind rolling applications is it, it depends on how good of a match that is. And so hopefully uh, that non-answer is good enough by the audience.
0: No, no, no. I, I mean, I think that is the the nature of rolling admissions, and just knowing that there are parameters is helpful for a resident who's trying to plan strategy for the next couple of months. And just really quickly, Martin and Jennifer, do you do you have a sort of similar approach to rolling processes like this? Do you have exploding offers?
3: We don't have a rolling enrollment process. Uh, We have a number of fellowships like a lot of the academic centers do. And just the coordination of those fellowships, ACGME and otherwise, are pretty challenging around making sure that, you know, we bring our entire leadership team forward to meet with folks. So we actually only have two interview days for all of our fellows, for all of our fellowships. And so hopefully you can make it if you think we're a priority and we also are not obligated to fill and we actually if we don't think that we have candidates that you know will be a good match for us and, and are what our expectation is of performance then we'll go unfilled and we actually think that that's important because you know we're really looking for folks who are, are focused and motivated and I could talk a little bit more about that but you know we're we're, we're really looking for people who are uh, can articulate to us why not only are we their choice but why this is you know the career choice for them rather than just trying a shoe on and sort of floating through the experience to decide if they even think they want to do a fellowship. So we we, we have had some folks come in and, and that's not what we're looking for. That's not a good match for us.
2: Yeah, it's, it's interesting to hear two perspectives because I think this is something that non-matching fellowships struggle with tremendously. We try very hard. We don't have it quite as structured as Jennifer just said in terms of a couple of dates, although I'm beginning to think about it now that she mentioned it, because it might make some things easier. But we try very hard to balance both the needs. You know, I have a responsibility to the department and the fellowship itself. But you also want to be responsible to the applicants. They're giving you a fair shake. To have it totally rolling, I think, is unfair to the pool. But to have it not roll at all is also unfair to your own department. Um, and you may miss out on a perfect candidate for your program and for them frankly if you delay compared to another program because you'll see this there gets a unfortunately out there there are some programs that do pressure fellowship candidates significantly i've seen it in my history but they'll get pressure even if you are their first your your program's their first choice for good reasons and vice versa they'll feel some pressure so you have to balance the needs of your department an individual applicant that may be a perfect fit for you and then the group at large so it's hard to balance there's no doubt
0: you know, it's so interesting that if you just look at fellowships as a whole in our specialty, that many of them have gone to the NRMP, Global Health and Ultrasound being being two of those. Others are doing sort of unofficial common offer dates. So Global Health did that for many years. MedEd is now doing uh, But, you know, still admin and research and very popular fellowships are in this, this rolling process. And I, I think it's important to kind of, again, pull the curtain back for applicants so that they you know just understand the mechanics of it.
4: Can I also add that I think from the applicant side, it's important to advocate for your own timeline? I think if you are open with saying, you know, I I want to pursue my, you know, my next two interviews, I'm very interested and I, you know, I need three weeks. I know you said two, that okay. And I think that shows a lot of maturity on the applicant's side. And that's somebody who I think we would want to work with. And I, I don't see why I would say no to that.
2: And vice versa. I think that's a good thing to hear from a fellowship director as well of you as an applicant. And, you know, I try, I don't do it every time. I may forget just based on the conversation, but try to say, hey, look, this is our anticipated process. It flexes a little bit. But if you get an offer earlier than that, would you do me the courtesy of letting me know? And if you're still interested and open, because I can't know that you've had an offer pending out there and you might get stressed by that. And I won't be offended. And I tell them right off the bat, I won't take that as a threat. Me, I just want that information because it's very useful for us to have a bi-directional conversation on it.
3: And again, this being a conversation about admin fellowships, I think what I'll throw in is that, you know, there are logistics. And at the end of the day, we've got patients to see and clinical hours to fill. Uh, and depending on what a portfolio in a department looks like, there is a timeline to decide, you know, are we going to fill this with a faculty position? Or are we going to fill this with a uh, fellowship position, depending on what everything else looks like? So I do think candidates should self-advocate. But again, if your future aspirations are to be a medical director, Think about how you're trying to manage the portfolio of people who are providing care. And if you're at a large academic center, you've also got this huge variable, which are grants and other protected time contracts. And it's all around November, December that you're trying to plan for June and July. So it's uh, it's a challenging dance that you're doing uh, where, you know, at the end of the day, you don't know exactly know what your resources are going to be. And yet you still got to fill your shifts.
0: Yeah I love the um the intelligence of the folks applying to admin and those on the panel because I'm going to dumb down for the rest of the audience what plat- <laughs> what what you mean by that it, your portfolio is the number of of folks you can accommodate right there's only so many docs that are needed at a shop so you only have so many positions to fill and I think a lot of our Fellowship applicants think, oh, gosh, I have to just beat out all of the other people applying for my particular fellowship. But in normal fluctuations year to year at a department, perhaps they're purposely not going to fill a couple of their non-ACGME fellowships because there's just not clinical need. Um, and, And that's something we haven't really talked about much on this series.
2: I don't know if the the two other panelists have experienced this, but I, I whether it's related to COVID or not, I suspect it is. We have seen applications come in much much earlier, and that has put a monkey wrench into the works related to fellowship directors and how do we behave respectfully within this new paradigm to the applicants as well as our own program and so to folks applying right now this year have some patience for us because this is a new one for us Um, we want to get you in early because you're interested early right and people have done their homework early and they've gotten their letters in early But what do we do with that? Do we go by our usual timeline or do we move it up? Because we've had applicants earlier this year. And God forbid we miss an applicant because we fill our spots and they just haven't put it out because they were on the usual timeline. So I don't know if the two other panelists have experienced this as well, but we've definitely seen it this year.
3: Yeah, again, I think I'll put this in context of nationally ED volumes are down. And so, there's also contraction in the need for clinical hours. So, a lot of places are decreasing the number of FTEs, full-time equivalents, uh, of people who are on shifts. And so, now there's just less bodies that are needed from a clinical perspective and back to mandatory positions which ACGME fellowships require in terms of clinical service hours and non-ACGME approved fellowships. So, I think it's going to be really interesting. I think there's a trend towards people wanting some security around that next step regarding fellowships, and yet there's going to be, a my opinion is, there's going to be a contraction of positions at least for this year. Related to most decisions, follow the money, uh, and at the end of the day, there's just less clinical revenue because we have there's less demand for our services nationally.
0: Yeah, I think our seniors only know two words, which is hiring freeze, right? So. It's it's hard to know, Martin, whether you're getting a lot of great applicants early because they're just really great applicants and there's a lot of interest in your program, or are we just going to see more seniors applying for fellowships because there's really not a you know quote hiring freeze, so to speak, on fellowships or, you know, for all of the, the reasons Jennifer described, there may be limitations, but perhaps seniors look at that as an easier way to get a job than to compete for for an ever shrinking pool of faculty positions in a tough coronavirus year. Dr. Tanaway, I I would love to understand the timeline really briefly. You you said applying early. What's early? What's normal? When and how should these candidates this year be contacting you or in other uh, admin fellowships?
4: Yeah. In a typical year, I think early is the start of the academic year, you know, summer, July. We've certainly had applicants as late as February for, you know, a July one start date. And historically, like we're talking around, that's been fine. I don't think this year that will be fine. You know, I, I don't imagine in 2021 we'll be wondering who our admin fellow is. So I think early for this cycle has passed, to be blunt, and I think our department has seen two to three times the number of applicants this year just for the admin fellowship. Uh, a lot of applications for our few faculty positions. You know, we have to balance those. So, you know, we have two fellow spots. And if the second one continues to go and fill through the winter holidays and a great candidate presents themselves or, you know, has an epiphany and it's a great match, then I think that's the plus side of rolling applications is a, a winter hire is possible. But I think this year's just a huge exception with with all of the fiscal and economic pressures that are put on our departments
0: and fellowships. Yeah, there's a bit of freedom, I suppose, in that yeah. So we said there's, you know, about 35 programs. I I would guess most don't have two spots, but maybe let's, let's say they all did. That's about 70 spots. Really at max, there's about 2000 residents out there in a a given year. Are you getting 70 interested residents? Is this, is this a a buyer's market, seller's market? Are, Are we filling all of the admin fellowships? What, what is your general take?
2: we've seen sort of the same number and same caliber of applicants this year. So I don't know that it's a buyer's or seller's market. You do see a little bit of regionality in applicants for administrative fellowships. I don't know if the two others have seen this. I guess the general trend is, is folks are interested in administration slash leadership look for fellowships in a certain region. There's a couple candidates every year that look nationwide or are really looking for the right match and don't care about location. but and I think that that trend seems to be sort of continuing this year, but it's early. I don't know how how Robbie and Jennifer feel about that.
3: Yeah, I agree with that. And obviously there's no national data for us to know if these go filled or unfilled, but you know what we hear is that they don't all go filled. I think often it is, especially for the really talented candidates, bit of a buyer's market. But I do think there's two categories of folks, and, and it's really that academic-non-academic split. I would say that from an academic perspective, right, we hear, we, it seems like we're sort of sourcing the, the same candidates because they've decided that they want a skill set that's different than that of a traditional operationalist, I guess I would call it. And those are the folks who are really looking at the contract management groups. This is not only part of an educational opportunity for them, but this is really um, a recruitment strategy. So they're trying to create candidates that they are then going to leverage their skill set and pivot it pretty quickly into leadership roles. And they can speak really well to, you know, if you come in through our program, this is actually, as I described, you know, a, a recruitment strategy into a leadership track, essentially straight out of out of residency. They tend to pay a little bit more. They don't typically have an expectation around scholarship. And they're really laser focused on, you know, this operational component. And so I think that that also divides the applicant pool, in my experience. So, Dr.
0: Tanaway, I need to, to know, what is your favorite spinoff show? We've been waiting the whole episode to find out.
4: So mine is A Different World, which was a Cosby Show spinoff. And The Cosby Show was my, probably my favorite show growing up. I used to record it on VHS tapes, and I could still see the tower of VHS tapes. But A, a Different World was I, I can't say I liked it as much as
0: the Cosby show at all, but it, it felt like home. Actually. It was a solid show. I agree. Yeah. And, you know, I'm kind of embarrassed given the whole Bill Cosby thing, but I too, Cosby show was my favorite show as a kid. I loved it. And here we are admitting that on, on this uh, very popular broadcast. That, that it was a good like, show. I know. All, all things socially aside. Uh, Michelle, do you have any questions? And I need to you know your, your favorite spinoff show as well.
1: Well, I kind of wanted to roll it back. I have one point and one quick question. Uh, one point is, you know, we've done a couple of these fellowship match advices now. And every time we finish, like, Oh man, in my free time, I'm going to need to do a talks fellowship, a global health fellowship, education fellowship. I'm like listing all this stuff. And I was hoping you guys would just tell me something way off where I'm like, Oh, nope, not doing that. But like, who wouldn't want to do an admin fellowship during a pandemic? Like yes. no other admin fellowships have ever, ever done this. So it doesn't surprise me also hiring freeze aside, like who wouldn't want to do this? So I'm looking forward to see who you match and, and what comes from this. But this the question I have is, as I was starting to look up uh, your credentials and, and starting this blog post draft, I saw that all three of you have an MBA. And Martin, you talked a little bit about advanced degrees. And you mentioned all the alphabet soup, and I thought you said MMA, like Mixed Martial Arts. I wasn't sure if that was also another option. Perhaps that'll be useful. But I'm curious how you guys decided on an MBA for each of you. Like, what's your backstory and why you decided it?
2: You know, an MMA could be useful in some meetings. There's no question about that, so... So I'm in a little bit of a different circumstance in the sense that I actually was lucky enough to craft my own fellowship back in the day with two of my mentors. And one had was the, uh, the chair of my department where I trained and he had become a hospital president. And the other one was the vice chair that become the chair. And the three of us sort of crafted kind of a makeshift two year curriculum to do both hospital and ED um, operations and administrative work. Um, But all three of us recognized that there was no didactic portion to that curriculum. We were just it was going to be a sort of learn by doing kind of piece of it. And so um, we all together decided that having that sort of set curriculum that an MBA offered was the right thing to do to add to the fellowship. Subsequently, almost all the fellowships have gone that way, which has been good. The reason for the MBA for me is, is I just really, at the time, and this is ancient history, it's no offense to healthcare right now, but at the time, over a decade ago, healthcare was really struggling with the business, so to speak, and management. And at the time, I was like, w- I want to learn outside the box. I want to learn from people in industries that have figured out these problems 20, 30 years ago that healthcare is struggling with today. So that, that was sort of my background to it. And uh more than that, the, the Michigan was where I got my MBA it was down the street from my training program and my college had no football team to speak of, and so now I'm a huge Michigan fan go blue.
3: So uh, the reason I got an MBA was, uh, actually, I did one of the dual degree programs, which many moons ago, there were only a handful in the country. And now there are many, many. I took a couple gap years between medical school and college and worked in the New York City. And one of my positions was, quote, working on Wall Street, which was really, I got really good at photocopying and uh, delivering coffee. But, you know, it was a great experience because even as a medical student to MS1 and MS2, as I started to question how was care delivered, um, you know, why did it look this way here? And why did it look this way there? If you really got to the YYYs, right, the IHI5Ys, it always came down, I said this before, it comes down to the money. And so I really want to understand a little bit more about how things worked from a complex adaptive system perspective. And this was a a good opportunity to to understand those whys.
4: Yeah, I I did a similar dual degree program, Tufts, similar, you're getting an MD and MBA concurrently, which is just a very different type of way to experience an MBA than our fellowships, I think, where you're a trained physician. And I think I pursued it at that stage, because similar to Jen, I had these gap years where I worked in the, the restaurant industry, I shared this with you guys before in San Francisco, and I came at it from a service element is like, how do you you know serve the people uh, on the other side of the counter at that point? And you know, I, I come from a medical family. And I always saw how do you serve the patient the best, whether it's in an office on the other side of a telemedicine screen in a big hospital. Um, and that always fascinated me. Um, I think that's why I pursued the MBA very early, like that. And I think for maybe listeners who are in residencies or, or in their maybe their first year, first couple of years as an attending, thinking about an admin fellowship. I think the reason you know to get involved in an MBA is if you see kind of your tribe, right? We we all talk to friends who have MBAs or management degrees who aren't physicians or hear about that. If that turns you on, if anything about that feels like, you know, the type of people that you would want to learn from, but regardless if they're medical, if they're physicians or not, I think, or you owe it to yourself to explore the idea of getting an MBA and then doing an admin fellowship.
1: Awesome. Yeah, thanks for all those answers. I am a huge fan of collecting and molding ideas outside of your circle, because I think that's where great ideas come from. I, I can't echo that enough. So also my spinoff, I kind of yeah. want to put it in there which is, did you know American Idol is a spinoff? It started in New Zealand. So I'm going with American Idol. What American, a
0: classic. Yeah, I like seasons one through three and then I, I sort of have to say I dropped
1: that. What are we season now? It's like season 89 or something? It's wonderful.
0: It's so old, Michelle, I have no idea what it is. I, I'm, All right, I'm gonna, gonna go, I'm gonna play old. I'm gonna go to, uh, you, you can figure out my age from this. I was nine years old when the single season of Joni Loves Chachi spun off from Happy Days. And I'm going to tell you, it was a season of magic when I was nine years old. All right. With that, panelists, thank you so much for a really great discussion. And here's your opportunity to plug your individual programs, though I've learned a lot about all three already. You have 60 seconds each to tell me something I don't know. So let's start with Dr. Resnick. Tell me something I don't know about the UMass Admin Fellowship.
2: Well, I would just say the UMass program is kind of a gem that's hidden in central New England um, in general. Our fellowship's been around a long time. It was the first approved by SAM. We have a fairly long track record of producing fellows, which we're pretty proud of. And the department itself, nobody knows this, but it's in top five NIH funding every year, but the, the name doesn't get out there. And I think that's part of it is we just, we don't brag enough, I think is part of it. And the last thing, Worcester is actually a fantastic place to live. Nobody knows what the heck Worcester is or can pronounce it correctly either, but we're the second largest city in New England. People don't realize that. We're 40 minutes from Boston and don't have the traffic or the twice the expensive housing that they do in downtown. So I think there's a lot to to say for our tiny little program here in Worcester that people don't necessarily know.
0: Yeah, absolutely, applicants. I've known Dr. Resnick for many, many years, and he's a a wonderfully inspiring individual. I think uh, I would enjoy being his trainee. So uh, UMass, great place, lots of going, going on in their department. It's on the Mass Turnpike. I grew up on the Mass Turnpike. It's wicked cool. All right, Dr. Weiler, tell me something I dunno about the University of Colorado.
3: Well, at the University of Colorado, please respectfully don't tell me that you love to hike, ski, camp, or do want to do wilderness medicine, because we know it. And uh yeah, we live in a pretty great place. Colorado's pretty uh pretty amazing and I confess I'm a native uh and left for 15 years and and came back and now my kids have no uh appreciation of what a great place they live in. So, I think what's you know special about us uh, that folks might not know is that myself and and our chair Dr. Rich Zane founded a, an innovation center for actually our health system that we run and we're pretty proud of have a $100 million investment fund, have a bunch of companies that we partner with to grow and scale their technologies. And I actually uh, am now the chief quality officer for our health system for the Denver metro area. And so now we really have an opportunity of fellows have an interest around patient safety, quality, and thinking about innovative technology solutions, either from a, a service perspective, or, you know, a monitoring perspective, care delivery perspective, we, there's a bunch of stuff that we're that we're working on that space included embedded decision support. So if that's something that uh, is of interest, I think that makes us pretty special and unique.
0: Yeah, we have something in common about the don't tell me you want to go camping in business. I'm <laughs> the only Stanford faculty without fleece. So I,
3: I Right. But, but it, when you come as a fellow, we will absolutely have a ski day.
0: <laughs> well, you know, definitely check out University of Colorado. I've heard Dr. Weiler speak several times and I learn so much every time I hear her lecture. So I can only imagine what it's like to be a trainee. So check out the University of Colorado. And then Let's hear a little bit about uh, Cornell from Dr. Tanaway. Tell me something I don't know about Cornell.
4: I should say that Dr. Weiler's uh, department, I think, took some of our wilderness medicine faculty from New York Presbyterian, Columbia, Cornell. But so we're with a great hospital, right? So New York Presbyterian Hospital with its multiple locations I think is a resource in itself. Of course we all like to tout our departments, but you know, I think our department at Wild Cornell is, you know, just a great place to be. So those two hospital and medical school, that combination in partner with the Columbia Department is is just a, a great triad of institutions to be a part of. Second thing, you know, we talked about money before. There's gonna be cheap rent in Manhattan post-COVID, so you guys should should come for that. But also on the on the angle of money is the executive MBA and master's of science uh, that comes with our two-year option. I just looked up is $165,000 and that tuition is is paid for. You know, there's an opportunity cost to doing an MBA no matter when you do it in life. But I think doing a, a fellowship with an advanced degree, I think there's value there. I think we could probably all agree. And then we do have, I just talked about the two-year option. We actually offer a one-year option. So if somebody either has an advanced degree or is just interested in in a quick, you know, I want the nuts and bolts and, you know, I'm not as interested in the MBA and master's, we offer a one-year option as well. And then lastly, our fellow is part of the teaching faculty that our chair, Dr. Rahul Sharma, and a couple of our admin folks, we have a scholars program, for the same name, healthcare leadership and management scholars program for medical students. We have, this year we had six medical students who are business-minded between their first and second year. And our fellow comes in as is, is teaching faculty right away. So you have to do that for either one summer or two summers, depending how you know long you're a fellow. So immediately you're a teacher and a mentor to medical students
0: who assumingly are, are interested in, in being like you. As Michelle said, I can only imagine what training during COVID in New York City as an admin fellow must have been like. So uh, students, definitely check out Cornell. It's got every bell and whistle imaginable and so many great perks. Uh, Michelle, thanks for having a spinoff episode about admin fellowships. Thanks to our panelists for a great discussion. And we'll see you next time on EM Fellowship Match Advice. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Emergency Medicine Match Advice. You can view any of our episodes for free on Alium's YouTube channel, or if you prefer, listen to the episodes as Alium podcasts on SoundCloud. Also, check out summaries of our episodes as blog posts on Alium.com and in the publication A User's Guide to the Alium EM Match Advice Series in the June 2017 issue of the Western Journal of Emergency Medicine. We love to hear from our listeners. Post your questions or comments for any of our episodes on Alien.com. Thanks for joining us.